Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on 9 to Noon to help you navigate family life to the worrying behaviour which is happening to a much greater degree in 12 to 18 year olds than we might think. Some research indicates that perhaps between a third to half of our young people have intentionally harmed themselves at least once. Professor in the School of Psychology at Victoria University, Wellington, Mark Wilson, is one of our country's top researchers on self-harming. He is the leader of the Youth Wellbeing Study Team and as such is trying to build a stock of resources for when a parent first discovers that their child is hurting him or herself. Mark is in the Wellington studio. Good morning. Yeah, Catherine. It's a quite remarkable figure that. Does it come from one particular mm. study? We've been doing this work for about a decade now. Um, so we've we've asked lots and lots of people, different age groups. And I think the real eye-opener was about six, seven years ago when we, we found in a large sample of about 1,500 young people that half of them said they'd hurt themselves at least once without the intention of actually ending their lives. And that, that was kind of the inspiration for the work that we've been doing subsequently, um, fortunately funded by the Health Research Council of New Zealand. Is this a case of uh, a representative sample or is it one study of one particular group? What, mm-hmm. what should we make of that if we're thinking about it, about the whole population of, of, of uh, young people in this sure. age group? So the research we've been doing is based in the broader Wellington region in the upper South Island. So it involves large numbers of people, something like 4,000 young people have participated over the last five years. They're generally representative of the New Zealand population. About two-thirds of them are Pākehā, 15, 16% are Māori. We've got a small number of other ethnicities as well. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't want to say that if you went into South Auckland, for example, and, and went into a school, you'd find exactly the same numbers. But I'm pretty confident that, that, it's, that we're doing something right. What do we learn any more about the circumstances? Was that a headline figure, or did you do some qualitative mm-hmm. work? Have others done some qualitative work on what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think um, increasingly people have become interested in this um, behaviour as a as a subject of research. Certainly, over the last twenty odd years, uh, we, we've always had self harm and self injury with us. You can find references to it in the Bible and numerous um, sort of folklore tales, things like that. But it was historically considered to be the sort of thing that you typically found amongst people who were, so for example, incarcerated uh, criminals, people with pervasive developmental delay, people with schizophrenia. And it's only in the last 20 odd years that we've realised that actually people who, who walk alongside us on the street have also got an experience of it. The purpose of it, or the reason for mm. it, is what? Well, I, I've learnt over the last 20 years that pretty much everything we do and think serves some kind of reason, and self-injury is exactly the same. So when a person, a young person or anyone hurts themselves, it can often, it serves a function. There's a range of different functions um, amongst the young people that we've been working with. By far and away, the most common function that self-injury serves is a, a way of them regulating their emotional experience, often in situations where they may not have other resources available to them to do that. Second and third most common reasons are to punish themselves because they don't think that they're actually living up to the expectations they have of themselves or that other people may have. And the third most common is a, is a kind of interesting one. We, we call it anti-dissociation, but what it really means is that people are hurting themselves so they can feel something, maybe because they don't feel like they're in touch with their bodies, they feel numb. So it's trying to have a feeling. Exactly, that's right. 
So the typical age that the behaviour might start, mm. is, the, is there one? Well, international research says that sort of 14 would be the average um, age of onset. Um, we ask our participants um, when they started hurting themselves, and there's quite a quite a range. But I'd say that the majority in our in our sample, it's about 13 is the average age. That's the kind of modal age. Difference between boys and girls? Well, we in our early research we never found any differences, and this is a kind of controversial um, question in the international literature. So, in the current study, we're finding that girls are reporting a little bit more self-injury. Historically, we never have. Part of it might be. One of the reasons why we do find differences in some studies is the way we ask the question. So girls are a little bit more likely to cut themselves. Um, boys and girls are both, both more likely to cut themselves and engage in other forms of self-injury. But girls are more likely than boys to cut themselves. So if you only ask young people if they've cut themselves, you're going to get over-representation amongst girls. And other kinds of behaviours without too much detail, sharp objects, anything that's designed to cause yeah. a shock of pain? Or, or well, we in, it, we use a definition of something called non-suicidal self-injury. So it's specifically tissue damage that isn't associated with the desire to end your life. And so the whole variety of different things that can bruise, tear, cut, anything, anything that people engage in for those reasons. What have we learnt then about how the behaviour develops, if if it develops? Mm. What are some of the patterns? And again, if you're a parent who's obviously uh, perhaps experiencing this for the first time mm. or wondering or worrying, what should you be on the mm. lookout for? Well, the the way that we, we understand self-injury is that regardless of what function it serves for the young, per, uh, young person, it typically is a response to something that's happening in their lives. So, for example, they're being bullied at school or they've got a grade that is less than they anticipated, they may have lost a job, a relationship breakup isn't an uncommon sort of thing. These are the sorts of things that quite reasonably generate strong negative emotions emotions in young people and actually they may not be particularly well equipped to deal with them particularly if it's the first relationship breakup or the first time that they've lost a job so I think that that's one thing that parents can look out for is there anything going on in your young person's life um, at the same time it, look for behaviour changes. If a young person appears more withdrawn than they were a little while before, are they spending more time shut away in their room? Um, are they wearing clothes that are inappropriate for the weather, for example? Um, are they watching things, listening to things that might be considered by, by parents to have you know, particularly dark themes? So you might have a cluster of behaviours going on. That's right. Of course, there are going to be listeners out there who just think, well, that's a teenager, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> and I can't really disagree, okay. but I think the prescription is the same regardless. I don't think you make your your family a worse place by saying to your young person, hey, is everything okay when it's actually okay? Will you sometimes notice um, a, a legacy, I guess, of mm -hmm. self-harm? And what do you do if that happens? Will you start to notice, I don't mm -hmm. know, cuts or scar? Yeah. I mean, do, would it normally be hidden behaviour? Is it intended to be hidden behaviour? Yeah, we typically find that the vast majority of self-injury is hidden. It's done privately. It's done on uh, the, a person's when they're alone, um, typically they cover it up. Um, some young people may deliberately hurt themselves in areas of their body where other people typically aren't going to see it. Um, so if, if a parent or someone who interacts with young people does notice that someone is shows signs of unusual types of injuries um, where you haven't seen them previously or, or, or there are examples of historical scarring, then I think that's a perfectly reasonable opportunity for someone to say, hey, I haven't seen those before. What's going on? 
I, I asked about progression. It was interesting because that research that we talked about had mm. a third to half of young people having harmed themselves mm-hmm. at least once. Is it sometimes once and not again? Yeah. Or does it tend to escalate? What What's the pattern? Yeah. So in our early research, that half of young people in the Wellington region hurting themselves before they reach school leaving age, probably about 40% of the people who hurt themselves did so chronically. But that means the majority of them only hurt themselves once. And in fact, in some of our research, we found that those people who hurt themselves but only once actually are doing really well. And that might be because something bad happens. I'm aware that people I know, Amy Winehouse, I've seen stuff on the internet, might hurt themselves. So I try it. Didn't work for me. I moved on. I spoke to someone. I went running. I listened to some music. It's quite an adaptive type of response. And of that figure, how many might go on for this to become regular Mm. or to escalate? Yeah, so in the more recent research with larger numbers of people, we're finding that um, a greater proportion of the self-injury that people are reporting is current. That's to say it's within the last year. So that's something like 60%. So that's a bit concerning to me because that does suggest there might have been some kind of a change and that more people are engaging in it chronically. What we do know as well is that sort of somewhat paradoxically perhaps, a lot of self-injury kind of spontaneously resolves. So a lot of young people who've never spoken to anyone about hurting themselves... Just stop doing yeah, it. Yeah, just stop doing it. But how, do, we, how do you define chronically, by the way? Will yeah. it leave a permanent scar or mark or harm? I think anyone who's engaged in self-injury more than five, six, seven times right. probably we're starting to head into that region. Anyone who's hurt themselves more than 20 times is... is um, definitely in that category. Have we um, touched on, I don't think we have, the question of, of perfectionism. Mm. Uh, again, is, is, is there a sense that it is a behaviour on the rise and there could mm-hmm. be multiple reasons? As you said, there's just so much more yep. that people can read about, learn about uh, yeah. o- online, right? Um, but is there any other indication it is on the rise mm. as a behaviour? Well, two things, uh, probably three things. I think that it's reasonable to think that it's more common now than it has been before, even though it's always been with us. The problem is that we haven't historically got a body of research dating back long enough for us to be able to establish some baselines. But certainly when when we started doing this research, the guidance counsellors, pastoral care workers that we've been working with in schools said that in their experience they're seeing more of it now than they ever have before. And I think that in part is because it is it's become more easily available to young people as the small part of the smorgasbord of things that are available to them. I should also say that, that it's not just kids who avoid their emotional experience by engaging in self-injury or some other type of behaviour. If I've had a bad day at work, might have a big project on that's still going on, I go home, I crack a bottle of wine as soon as I go home. After three or four glasses, I'm not really thinking about the day that I've had. That's actually not not exactly, that's not different from what we're talking mm. about here. It's just a different way, uh, a behaviour that serves the same function. I mentioned the perfectionism because, mm. and, and the, the question about whether it's on the rise is because what we are seeing, and you help me deal with what are different factors and to the mm. extent that they overlap, we are getting very worried about rates of mm-hmm. anxiety among yeah. our teens relative to previous times. Uh, so whether it's a pressure put on oneself through a perfectionist Mm. tendency or whether it is a pressure we're all putting on this generation of kids, is there any link? Yeah. Well, I think there's reason to think that this is is an increasing problem. We, the people we collaborate with in school, certainly see it as a growing problem. When we do community outreach events, parents see it as an increasing problem. This is um, part of the focus of the work of one of my team, Maddie Brocklesby, who's, I think, been interviewed by RNZ last year about this stuff. Um, I think there's reason to think it's on the increase, and there are several components to it. I think it's a great thing for young people to want to do well in their studies or whatever it is that's in their lives, but I think that what can happen sometimes is a young person comes home, they've got their first merit or their first excellence, and their parents go, that's wonderful. I so look forward to seeing that again. 
And then there's the risk that it shifts from being something that the young person has been, it's a reward for the hard work they've put into becoming the, the end in itself. And I think that there's the challenge, particularly in an environment where young people are being constantly assessed, where it becomes less about the learning and more about the merit or the excellence at the other end, to the point where when you feel like you're not living up to other people's expectations, that's where that self-punishment comes in. And that we find that perfectionistic young people are much more likely to say, I hurt myself to punish myself. I'm not a worthwhile person. There is the wanting to do well, and then there is just simply the absolute overload of some mm-hmm. of these, some of our kids' lives, and the relentlessness of it. And is and is that a, a factor as well, or does that sometimes mm. exhibit as a different behaviour? I think it can. Coming back to the point made earlier on, self-injury is a behaviour that may serve to regulate emotions. There are a variety of other things that that people can do. You can go and talk to someone, for example. That's a nice adaptive way of managing an emotional experience. So self-injury typically occurs amongst people who may not have as well-developed an emotion regulation toolkit. Um, So I think that... I think we don't have good data that is responsive enough to the changes that are going on in adolescents' lives to be able to confidently say this is a problem, much a much bigger problem than it was two, three, four, five years ago. But certainly anecdotally we're hearing it from young people, teachers, pastoral care workers and parents. So then let's talk about what we do because everything I'm hearing from mm. you is keep calm, don't panic. Yeah. Human beings mm-hmm. look for ways to ease their psychic pain and you mentioned yes. the way adults will do it sometimes with bigger bank balances, yes. right? This, for for whatever reason, what did mm. you call it? A function behaviour. Yeah, Meaning... so it's an ad- it serves a function. Right. The, it's a maladaptive function but it's an, it, it, it is a way of responding to something going on. But what I heard from you in the first instance mm. was don't panic. It's, it's a thing. Yeah. Right, okay. Now, now I'll come to some questions in a moment but mm. what what is your starting point advice for what to yeah. do if you are either suspecting or have mm-hmm. um, you, you know mm-hmm. that your child's doing this? Yeah, um, it's going to sound like a real cliche, but I think communication is really, really key here. Um, I, I'll leave it up to individual parents to work out exactly how they might want to start that conversation. But I think it's important in the first instance to say, don't freak out, but also take it seriously. We know that the vast majority of self-injury is not doesn't serve a suicide function. It's not associated with a desire to end, end one's life. But at the same time, it has problems associated with it. 20% of the young people we talk to say that they have hurt themselves enough to require medical attention. So there are physiological, physical, medical consequences of hurting yourself. So it's something we, we don't want people to be doing necessarily. I think that parents often find it really challenging when they discover that the young person in their lives is hurting themselves. And there are a lot of emotions that go along with that. Anger, guilt, shame, sometimes resentment. Fear. Fear, absolutely. And, and, and resentment, right. Um, and I think that um, these are all understandable emotional responses to this kind of, to this first disclosure or first discovery. But we also know that what happens after that first disclosure or first discovery is really important for whether or not a person continues to seek help. So what is the pertinent information about that? Um, so I think that the first instance, what's going on here exactly? So I've noticed that, that I've seen those scars. I've never seen those before. There must be something pretty tough going on. I think it's really important for adults to validate young people's experience in the same way that I think it's important for me to validate ad- adults' experiences of the emotions they feel when they discover Don't talk it away. Don't say it'll be okay. Absolutely. Or first acknowledge that yep. there's pain. That's exactly right. 
Um, and I think they're a really important question, regardless of whether it's a parent, a teacher, a friend, is to say, so why? What, what, what's going on for you? What, what caused that? Because, as I've already said, it's usually emotions that occur in the response to something that's happening in one's I mean, life. I mean, your first instance is to stop doing that. It's a yeah. terrible thing to do. But actually, yeah. your better response is... Yep. why, what's going on That's for right. you to be doing this. Yeah, so what we're effectively doing is problem solving. Um, professionals who work with young people who hurt themselves will try to build up their toolkit of ways that they can manage their emotions in ways that are perhaps less maladaptive. So what else could you do when you're, when, when you're feeling that way? Um, when we ask young people, they're often really good at coming up with a whole range of different things. Um, talk to my friends, talk to an adult. Um, I could listen to music. Exercise is a fantastic way to manage your emotional experience. But I think one of the real challenges is that when a, when a person, whether it's a young person or an adult, is in this kind of space, those really easy-to-access ideas when you're sitting in a classroom listening to someone like me engaging in a workshop actually aren't as easily available to you. And they have to recognise the looming... Um, urge or whatever it mm-hmm. is that builds and then have um, some kind of more appropriate response. Is mm-hmm. it something normally parents can deal with by themselves or is it one where you advise they yeah. would get help from somewhere? I think that so one of my colleagues in North America Janice Whitlock would say that um, parents are an important part of the solution for young people, in part because parents are part of the context in which young people live. At the same time, I think it's important for ev- anybody engaging with someone who hurts themselves to not step outside or be aware of the boundaries of their own competence and comfort. These are really challenging things to talk about or to, e- or to see. So I think that... Um, I think in the first instance, here in New Zealand, we've got fantastic pastoral care workers in our schools, many of whom have uh, increasingly received training. So that's one of the sources of support and advice that I would go to. GPs are also one of the most common first responders. Is there a risk of pathologising this, mm-hmm. of turning it into uh, you know, another kind of clinical illness, mm-hmm. where, it, where as you've described it, it is a function behaviour, yeah. it is something you do. It's that kind can of a be... symptom, right? Right. Mm. Okay. Let's talk about some of the um, some of the emails mm-hmm. that have come in here. Hello, my daughter has a friend who self harms. Um, the school and her family are on board with her. She's ongoing support. My question: She has ongoing support. My mm-hmm. question regards those kids mm. whom she shows her scars and sometimes fresh wounds too. What is the best way for them to react? Self-harming is something I wasn't even aware of until mm. I was an adult. And my daughter is last year's of primary school and still trying to wrap her head around the why. There's a lot in there. Mm, First yeah. of all, there's the others, the, the other kids who are seeing this mm-hmm. activity. What are, you, what are you talking to? How are you talking mm. to them? Well, 70% of the young people we speak to say they know at least one person who's hurt themselves. Something like 15% of those young people have a family member who's hurt themselves that they're aware of. So the first thing I think for for parents out there is that this is part of our young people's lives. By starting a conversation, it's unlikely you're going to be making young people think about something they've never otherwise thought of. I do think that there is a space here, there's a real gap in terms of supporting the friends and acquaintances of people who hurt themselves. We know that it's very stressful for parents. It must be very stressful for young people, particularly when they're trying to learn how to manage their own emotional experience. Now, in terms of what what, what I could say to people who are supporting 
those who self-injure. Um, there's a guy, Barry Walsh, in North America who's very influential in this area, and he would say you don't want to freak out for several reasons. One is you might make a person feel really stigmatised. You might make them feel ashamed of their behaviour um, if you really freak out, whether it's... Um, so if you, if you make someone... If you talk about someone as if they're a freak, for example, that's not a good thing. It's going to discourage them from getting help. But you also don't necessarily want to reward them for the behaviour, right? So sometimes what... Sometimes for some young people, they hurt themselves as a way of marking their distress to others, maybe because that's the only mechanism they might have. And if you wrap a big blanket around them and take all of their problems away onto yourself, that may not be building that resilience to actually cope with it. On the other hand, you don't want to ignore it either. So I think there's a really tricky middle ground that goes on there. My advice for young people who have a friend who's hurting themselves is to go and talk to the pastoral care workers in your school. My daughter never cut herself, says this emailer, but she did slowly pull her hair out, so it took a long time for me to actually realise it was a self-injury thing. Uh, This was when her dad found a new partner. It took at least a year before Mm. she got over it uh, and had covered up quite large bald patches as well. So this is another Mm -hmm. behaviour. Again, as you have suggested, it was aligned with a big event in in her life. Um, The good news, it sounds like it was uh, after a year. And and is that not Mm. an atypical kind of situation? There, well, the situation that's described, I think, is a pretty common one. I mean, it could be anything that you know, that, that causes some kind of you know, strong emotional response, and that sounds like it fits the bill nicely. Hair pulling is, is not something that we typically see. People, Young people don't spontaneously typically think of pulling out their hair in this type of context. So when we ask them, what sort of things have you done? Hair pulling is relatively unusual. But what it does potentially have in common is that it's a self-soothing thing, right? It's something that people get into the habit of doing to help them to manage their experience. But it's relatively unusual in this area of research, in part because there are also other clinical syndromes that involve hair pulling. Trichotillomania, for example. Okay. okay. Another email. My child's school friend cutting self-harming. Her mother believes her daughter's no longer doing it, but the girl has admitted to my child that she's still doing it and made mm. my child promise not to tell what do we oh, do? That is a tricky one. That is so tough. Um, I I think that that's tremendously problematic um, because it involves trust and the potential concern around violation of trust. I think that if an adult knows about it, then I think one of the ways to deal with it is for the adult to, to deal with it and not make it the responsibility of the young person. Um, so that at least there's some plausible deniability there for the young person. But social relationships are really, really tremendously important for everyone, and particularly for young people trying to find their way in the world. My advice in this context is for the parent of the child who's disclosed that that that's still going on, that might want to have a word with with someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, this one here, sadly, with the self-injury, the scars can leave permanent scars. Mm-hmm. Uh, remains visible for life. I have a very scarred daughter. Uh, I don't know how she manages mm. to cope now that she no longer cuts, but she can't hide her body forever. Uh, I feel for my daughter. She also makes the point that boarding mm. school hid it from me. Mm. That is an interesting Well, for some young people, the scars aren't a negative thing. They're a sign of something that they've triumphed over. So, again, okay. it's how you, how, you, right. how you deal with it. All right. Mark, thank you very much. Uh, Mark Wilson. Professor in the School of Psychology at Victoria University, Wellington. And don't forget that you can uh, subscribe to our parenting segments on the RNZ podcasts and series page. It's called It Takes a Village. And there are other parenting uh, stories to be heard there as well, including uh, Katie Gossett's Are We There Yet?, which you can also access on that page. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.